experience to stand before you. The room, of course, always looks different from this end. <laughs> I want to start with a few, a few uh, quick observations and comments. Um, one, as I was preparing this, and you're preparing a uh, teaching on pride, it's always uh, great to have your pride pricked when you sit down and realize how hard it is and how much hard work it is to prepare these lessons, which brings to mind my thankfulness for our pastors who have to do this on a regular weekly basis, and also for those of you who step in and do this regularly. I was asked to do this, and I needed two full months to prepare. I can only imagine those of you like Rob and Dennis who do this a lot more frequently, especially Rob, who also prepares slides. As I've told everyone who's asked me, there are no slides, because as I was going through my notes this morning, I kept finding typos. So uh, the, other, the other thing I want to point out, uh, we'll see how long this goes. Uh, when you're preparing something like this, I'm used to being able to run my own timeline and go however long it goes, because that's how it runs in my profession a lot of times. I have an hour. Um, we might take the whole hour. We might take less than the whole hour. We might run out of time. Uh, ending correctly on time is probably the least likely thing to happen. So just be forewarned. All right, let's start with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to gather, to enjoy fellowship with one another and with you. We enjoy um, the time we spend uh, with each other. But may our hearts be turned now to you and to your word that we might receive instruction and edification, that we might be strengthened in our walk with you so we might serve you better that your kingdom might be advanced in our lives and through our lives, and that your name might be glorified in what we do, what we say, what we think. Lord, I pray that you'll go with us as we spend this, um, this time examining um, these issues of pride and self-love. May you be with me as I seek to teach and instruct. May I be um, cognizant of the weighty nature of such a task. And Lord, may we just enjoy the time we get to spend in your word. It's the name of your son that we pray. Amen. So uh, for those of you who read the, read the chapters, I will not put myself in that class every week. I did read for this week, so don't worry about that. I did actually read the chapters I was prepared um, but you'll notice, or have noticed, that in the second chapter on self-love, Jones made a statement about how whenever you examine these ideas of pride and self-love, that there's a great deal of overlap, which, as we go through it, I hope you will see. And it makes my task both easier and harder, easier because a lot of the topics will overlap, and they'll relate one to another, harder because then I have to try and figure out how to organize that being said, I want to start off um, with a couple of quick thoughts for us to keep in mind as we are considering these issues. The first one is I want to hearken back to what happened in Genesis 3 and something that the devil said to Eve when he was tempting her. When he's speaking, he says, Surely you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So as I was preparing and as I was reading, I believe Mark Jones also made these observations. It kept coming to the forefront of my mind that as we examine various issues in our lives, whether it's pride, self-love, unbelief is also one, which I believe is next week, and I think Ryan's teaching next week, or Dennis's, okay, Dennis is teaching next week that when you're examining these issues, they're issues that sit at the root of our nature when we're fallen. They're not just the outworking. There is the outworking of pride in our lives and of self-love that evidences itself, but it's also more pervasive than that. It sits at the heart and works itself out in other areas. So Jones puts it this way. Self-love and pride hurts, destroys, kills, and leads to judgment. All sins are the results of this passion, or, as Manton says, the root of corruption is carnal self-love. 
for it is at the bottom of other sins. Because men love themselves and their flesh as themselves more than God. Speaking specifically of pride, he says this. We all by nature want what only belongs to God. Preeminence in all things. Instead of hallowed be your name, pride demands, hallowed be my name. Self and sin are practically synonymous for the natural man. All violations of God's commandments are expressions, in one way or another, of pride. Later, he says, self-love is idolatry. In fact, as Sibbies says, and quick aside, again, for Rob, he's pulling pictures of these old theologians and knowing their names and pulling the full quotes. I was struggling to get down what Mark Jones said. But anyways, with respect to self-love, he observes, self-love is idolatry. In fact, as Sibby says, he is the idol and the idolater. He has a high self-esteem of himself, and those that do not highly esteem him, he swells against them. This explains why true conversion must be a divine work. We love ourselves so much that our desire to relinquish our throne is non-existent. So it's that idea, that idea of being like God. We are supplanting God and putting ourselves in that place. Pride and self-love are both examples of how we do that. So as we discuss these issues, I want us to keep in mind that idea. Because like I said, it not only evidences itself in our prideful attitudes, our prideful heart, the manner in which we act in self-love, but it sits at the root and other things grow and flourish out of that and flourish in a not good sense. So as we're uh, discussing these things today, and it will come up later um, in Jones's uh, comments, those are, that's a thought I want to keep in mind. The second question stems and flows somewhat from the first. And I will preface this by saying a couple things. One, it's an intentionally provocative question because I want us to think. Two, and this is going to be frustrating for some of you or maybe all of you because it would be frustrating for me, is I don't want to get sidetracked by the question right now. We'll wait till the end. Second, um, I don't think we're going to provide a full answer for it today, but rather just some thoughts and observations about it. So with that being said, here is what I would consider a somewhat provocative question, which is, is there ever such a thing as an appropriate and righteous pride or an appropriate and righteous self-love? So, like I said, I don't want to get sidetracked by that question right now, but before we move into the next part, do any observations, questions, comments? No, I, I don't think so. Well, I mean, could you flesh your thought out more fully, though? Oh, yes, love your neighbor as yourself. Yes. Okay, yes, that does start to get at the question and a point that we'll talk about later, which is preface use of language in how we think and discuss things, which, again, Dennis, we're going to get to at the end of the lesson, not now. All right, anything else before we move on? Yes. Somebody is giving some of my thoughts and observations before we get there. So other people, a lot easier than we know it and see it in ourselves, uh, which is something we're going to push on later. Yes. Okay. And this is a this is a point. Well, one to Seth's point about David not seeing it, maybe not seeing it himself, but it being pride. His pride is pervasive, and Jones calls it secret. Sometimes it's it's so secret that nobody sees it. You know, but it, the people in Israel probably thought that David had a good reason for doing the census, and then God comes in and judges him for it. Yeah. And then to, to Rob's point about pride and judging others, one of the things that I bring up later on, which we'll touch on, is I would contend that pride for the believer is even more foolish than pride for the unbeliever. It's like, am I worthy? No, I'm not. Yeah. And that, that, when I was thinking about how to describe my, my initial observation about the root, 
one thought that came to mind in one description was facets, that these are so often different facets of the same fundamental issue that pride, self-love, unbelief, envy are different faces on the problem. And they, they reflect light differently, but they're all going to be in the same general grouping, and they stem out of that. So it's so, so often there's so much overlap and inter interconnectivity that you can't neatly separate them out, which we're trying to do here, but we'll, we'll, we'll allow your, your additional comments. Jones puts it this way when he's talking about um, why does God hate pride, because I agree with the things that you brought up and the things that I thought about, but one of the things that I would say, and I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to think about them in this way, um, is they're a reflection of how we consider our, the impact on us of this issue. Why does God hate pride? Well, it's like, oh, because I'm putting myself in his place. I am, you know, I'm neglecting the benefits he has given me. I'm thinking my, my, the thing I can do is better than the thing he can do, uh, which I believe is appropriate. But I think Jones brings up more fundamental and important for our understanding of why it's so pernicious. He puts it this way, because his majesty can have no competition. He looks down on such insignificant specks of dust and acid, ashes, with his infinitely accurate penetrating eye, beholds our desire to dethrone them. Can, such indifferent, can he be indifferent to such madness? So it's not just vis-a-vis -vis us to him, it's how dare we? It's madness. It's stupidity. It's folly. How dare we have pride? He is God. We are not. I thought about the, that, that statement, and I was like, where is it? I can never remember. I have those snippets of verses in my head, and I can never remember where they are. And then you go find them, and it's like, oh, the whole context just fleshes this out. So Isaiah 46. To whom will you liken me and make me equal, and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith. And he makes it into a god. They fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Why does God hate pride? Because he's God. How dare we talk back to God? Romans 8, or is it Romans 9? We ask him a question. You have no right to ask the question. Can the clay question the potter? I mean, that's the vast goal. Why dare, why, where do we base our pride? So, all that being said, um, what causes our pride then? It's foolish, it's stupid, it's mad, yet we all have it. That's one of the few blanket statements I will make. We all have pride. We all have self-love. So what causes it? We've touched on some of these issues already. But what are, what are your thoughts, ideas, questions? Art's, Art's laughing, so I'm going to call on him. We inherited it. <laughs> True. It's there. Ignorance of God. What's the flip side of that coin? Ignorance of ourselves. Those are the two that I would pull out, and I think they're the two that Mark Jones pulls out. Ignorance of God and ignorance of ourselves. So when we're confronted by a righteous God, what happens? I think back to Isaiah 6. We have the prophet Isaiah is brought into a vision, sees God, and what does he do? I mean, he's, he's the prophet Isaiah. What does he do? Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. Woe is me was his response to seeing the Lord. What's the flip side of that? When the unrighteous are ignorant of God and are deliberately ignorant of God. We see that in Romans. Romans 1, 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became foolish in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. So they do to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. When we're deliberately ignorant of God, we, we, all we have left is ourselves. Maybe. Go ahead. Yes. Westminster one. It's the, it's the first out of the out of the catechism. Which somebody somebody in here will probably correct me if I'm wrong. It's my understanding is the first question in the Westminster Confession was somewhat controversial when they were deciding what would be the first question because it was the question of what is the chief end of man, and some of them were like, why are we putting man as the first question in the Westminster Confession? And fair question. The response was because we're putting him in his place. Um, uh, but yes, it is a it is a sort of a a corruption of that first question. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What is the chief end of natural man? And you you read it. I do have it in my notes somewhere else. But go ahead. Yes. And as, a, as we'll get to later, it's delusion because it's ultimately f- pointless, futile, and full of foolishness. It doesn't work. All right. So the other side of the coin, ignorance of, of God. We don't know and see God properly. When we know and see God properly, like Isaiah, we call out, woe is me because I'm a man of unclean lips. That's the only response we could have. I mean, at the end of, end of days, everyone will will bow and confess he's Lord. Why? Because they're going to see him in his full glory and honor and majesty and be unable to say otherwise, regardless of where they stand in position to him. Ignorance of self. Like I said, these two run hand in hand. Um, Our knowledge of God shines a light on us and reveals our depravity and baseness. Jones describes it this way. The doctrine of justification by faith alone whereby we not only receive forgiveness of sins, but also the imputed righteousness of Christ humbles us as it teaches us that we bring absolutely nothing to offer God in our salvation. We come to the Savior essentially proclaiming, I am a poor sinner and nothing at all, but Christ is my all in all. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' love and righteousness. The step into Christ out of self is a step from pride to humility. Failure to grasp our utter moral bankruptcy is a major cause of pride in the natural man. He vainly believes he is not as bad as most and a great deal better than he really is. To Rob's point. We look at ourselves and we're like, I'm fine. We look at everyone else, you're not fine. So how does pride manifest? As we were t- Mike and I were talking about earlier, I, I'm not going to put a definition on, on pride or how it, how it shows itself because I think there's myriad ways in which it comes up and manifests. The hardest, I think, to see are those that lie within us, though I would say that's the most important ones to know because those are the ones that we struggle with and need to repent of. So I'm going to try and read the notes that I wrote on the side of my notes. Um, Unfortunately, the notes I wrote yesterday are typed. The ones I did this morning are handwritten, and I need my secretary to read them for me. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, like I said, I'm going to have a bold statement. We all have pride. So what is the sources of our pride? Or what is, how does it manifest itself? Because uh, it's important to know. So thinking this morning, how does it manifest itself in me? 
Uh, you might not have noticed it within the context of this lesson, but I have very self-deprecating humor, which unfortunately is probably at times evidence of pride and a manifestation of pride. It's that sort of pharisaical attitude of saying, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to showcase my humility and my failures in a way that is effectively prideful. My career, that really strikes a note for me. Why is my career so important to me? Why is success in my career so important to me? Is it God-honoring that my career is so important to me? Uh, why do I care so much that my children are well-behaved in public? Let's just really hit the hot points for me. Uh, it's, uh, is it God honoring? Is it important that they are honoring God and glorifying him and that they are being edified and instructed? Or is it more important that I look good and people don't look at me and judge me for having children that are unruly or judge me and can, um, congratulate me that my children are not unruly? Though I don't know why any of y'all would ever do that if you ever watched my children. So, pride's reach is vast and difficult to check. And like, unlike other sins which require context in matters, the term that, that Jones used, pride can manifest and work its evil in every area of our life in all sorts of different ways, in the secret places of our heart, out in the open. So what are some examples of how you would describe how pride manifests? And to make it extra fun, how would you describe it manifesting itself in your own life? Let's go down that rabbit hole of I recognize it. Now I'm prideful for the fact that I recognize it. It's like a joy. Let's just go down, spiral down that hole. All right, anything else? It can be, I would say. I think uh, there's lots of potentially fine and productive attitudes and thoughts that can otherwise be prideful or can be both productive and prideful <laughs> if taken incorrectly. I think it was, I don't remember who it was teaching, but uh, somebody was quoting Luther and the idea of sinning boldly. Yeah. It's, it's like you have to continue in your life. You can't get stuck in that rabbit hole and that spiral down. And ultimately, it comes back to if this is the path that my thoughts and the conviction of the Spirit is leading me down to, then it should, like Megan said, turn us to Christ. Lord, I'm going to throw myself on your mercy. I'm also going to throw myself on the work of the Spirit in me to work these things out in me. All right. It's all good, but we need to move on. We've got 15 minutes to, to run through the rest of this. All right, self-love. So as Jones discusses in that chapter, this is going to parrot a lot of what related to pride because it's, I wouldn't say they're exactly identical, but there's a great deal of overlap between the two. Jones argues the chief principle which guides us in our actions is self-love and all the power and force that is turned and bent to advance and set it up to maintain and uphold its prerogative. And now, then, that self-love is made a man's utmost end. And is the Lord paramount and chief governor in this new erected kingdom of sin. So we're all little, little despots and kingdom, kings in our own kingdoms, however insignificant, small they might be. And self-love is the one that governs those. That being said, um, he points out, historically, the Reformed tradition has spoken of self-love in three ways. One being natural self-love, which doesn't sound like what we might think it is, because I hear natural, I think natural man, and that's not a good thing. Sinful self-love and supernatural self-love. Natural self-love, and I'll just read uh, what he quotes from, oh goodness, where is it? He quotes Charnock. I'm going to say that's how you say that name. Um, so Charnock's talking about these three types of self-love. The first is from nature, the second from sin, the third from grace. The first is implanted by creation, the second the fruit of corruption, the third is by the powerful operation of grace. So natural self-love is that which exists naturally within us to 
essentially maintain our lives. Or as Jones describes it, much self-love arises from a natural principle in all of us to rightly preserve the quality of our life. I stopped at the red light on the way to church this morning because I didn't want to die. That's an example of natural self-love. We seek uh, you know, good food because it tastes good. Is that a wrong thing? God gave us this creation and common graces to enjoy. Is it a wrong thing that I seek good food? Well, maybe. Um, we'll get to that in a minute. But that natural idea of not wanting to die, to seek to preserve good relationships and to develop um, and thrive in this world is examples of that natural self-love that exists within us and with, exists within nature. My dog prefers when I feed him scraps of chicken to the dog food I feed him. I would say that's an example of him saying, hey, I like this better than this. I want that. Uh, so I think, uh, and I think the Jones and the other uh, Reformed theologians that agree with me, natural self-love is not a wrong thing that it exists in nature, and it's described as rightly preserve the quality of life. So we all, in a sense, have it. Um, and I had another question that came to mind, but I'm not going to ask it, because I think we'd get off on a, on a rabbit trail that we don't have time for. The second one being sinful self-love, which is that love that arises in the human heart as naturally as we breathe and opposes God when our thoughts, affections, designs center only in our fleshly interests and rifle God of his honor. Thus the natural self-love, in itself good, becomes criminal by the excess, when it would be superior and not subordinate to God. So in that sense, natural self-love for the sinful man then becomes sinful self-love, because it becomes preeminent and takes the place of God. So, going back to the comments earlier about gluttony and um, sex and all those things, these are Food is a good thing that God gave us. Drink is a good thing that God gave us. Enjoyment of life. Friends are good things that God gave us. Fellowship, spouses, children are all good things God gave us. Work is a good thing God gave us. And yet, in our sinful inclinations, in our pursuit of those things, we remove God and put them in the place of God. And by doing that, we're saying, I want my self-interest to supplant God. And that point, it then becomes... Um, Sinful self-love. So, this is one that I don't want to say it's especially perversive in our culture, because I would say that it's perverse in every culture and every time. Um, It just manifests itself differently at times. But in our American consumerism culture, we do get to to point at that specifically, because that's the one we live in, therefore most relevant to us. We're inundated by self-love all over the place, in all forms. Uh, basically all the messaging we get everywhere is going to be primed. I mean, I guess it's, it's marketing one-on-one. Like, what is their interest and appeal to that? Well, that's, that's a problem for a sinful man because that's sinful at that point. It's like, I'm going to make this interest preeminent in my life. So um, he gave some examples, and he said, like, pride this also sits at the root of sin. We lust to satisfy our illicit desires. Again, sex is a good thing God gave us, and yet we've taken it to the nth and improper degree, and it's become sin. Laziness is a form of self-indulgence whereby we inordinately rest. Rest isn't bad. Self-care isn't bad. Just taking time to recover is not bad. And yet we, like every other man before us, are really good about taking a good thing and making it bad. Impatience results from our will, not being accomplished as quickly as we would like. Normally, I would make the joke that on the way to church, I had to repent for yelling at my children. I didn't have to do that today because they're not here. But normally, that would be the case because without fail, on Sunday morning, they decide to lose everything and to not listen and then to decide, I don't know which bowl of cereal. Like You have two options for oatmeal. Pick one. It doesn't take that much thought. Why did it take you five minutes to pick which bowl? I mean, impatience. I am impatient to get out the door because I need to go to church. A good thing. And yet I'm losing my mind and not treating my children properly (laughs) or with grace or with kindness or sitting down and instructing them. Now, they have their problems, but we'll deal with them later. So, impatience. That's one that I, when I I read that from Jones, I was like, oh, dear. 
Thank God that my children are not going to be with it this morning because this will really hit hard. Greed seeks for more than more for self than is necessary. So with sinful self-love, we wage war with God as we seek our own glory, our highest end rather than God's. God makes himself his highest end as he loves himself for his perfection. That's proper for God to do because he's God, not us. We are to adopt this view of God, namely to think God's thoughts after him. Instead, the natural man thinks his own thoughts of himself as he elevates himself to the place where God belongs. And then as a... Rob pointed out earlier with regard to pride, self-love stimulates does not only impact our relationship with God, it also impacts us with each other because it does not only put us in opposition to God, it puts us in opposition to one another because if I'm seeking my self-interest, I'm not seeking the interests of those around me, especially those that I need to care for, that I'm tasked with caring for, like my children. So, what is, stands in opposition to this? Supernatural self-love. Again, as Jones described it, this is the love that comes from grace, by the powerful operation of grace. So, as Jones describes sinful self-love as the chief end of natural man is love and glorify himself, we recognize the chief end of man is to, love, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, meaning our chief end is the glory of God, this is the example Christ sets himself when he came down. John 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life for all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John 17 is, of course, right before Jesus goes to the cross. He's seeking the glory of God in the cross. And why did he come? And we benefit in that. We benefit in that. We share in the benefits of that, which is amazing. But the purpose that Christ had was in part salvation of sinners, but it's the glorification of the Father and the glorification of the Son is why he descended again back to the potter and clay. The potter has the right to do with the clay that which he wills to create some vessels for destruction and some vessels for glory. We're the vessels. We don't get a say in which ones we are in. We get to participate in the glory of God, though, and that is a marvelous thing. But again, it centers back to God's glory. And so in this idea of supernatural self-love, the examples we're given um, in Scripture are the setting aside of ourself for the furtherance of God, his glory, and the furtherance of others. Matthew 20, or no, Matthew 16. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for, the sake, for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Foreshadowing the folly of sin and pride and sin of self-love. The absolute idiocy. It's, it's all doomed for failure. And yet we do it anyways. And then his point is, is, I've got something better for you. If you would yet submit your life to me and seek my glory and not your own. Ephesians 5. This is an example of how we are with one another. 25 through 29. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. So, I was going to open this up for conversation, but we're going to wrap up and then we'll talk. All right, so I want to circle back to a couple things. One is the idea of righteous pride and righteous self-love. I would contend that we have a language problem and a thinking problem. Um, and this is a concept that we're familiar with in our culture because we look at the culture and we complain when they misuse the word love in general. 
You know, God is love. Love your fellow man. And we say, you have a language problem culture. I would contend that when we talk about pride, I'm proud of the work that I do and a job well done. I'm proud of my children. I'm proud to be a Texan and a member of the community of Amarillo. Proud to be a member of this church. There's lots of things that are good that we describe in terms of pride or things that we do that are that we would say, oh no, it's good for me to take time to myself to rest. You know, this idea of self-care, of love. I would contend that, again, we have a language and a perception problem and that we need to correct those. Uh, and the problem is, is I think the language is so pervasive that it might just require a use of different language. When I say I want to be proud of my children, do I need to stop and consider what I actually need to think about and say about them. Is it actual pride, like Dick said? Am I proud of my children because look at the good job I did raising them? Look at the things they've accomplished because I've taught them? Or am I taking joy in the fact that they're honoring God in their lives with the gifts that he's given them? And that's one example of it. Um, when I think about, think back, my mother always says, and she reminds us, that her greatest joy is that her children walk with the Lord. And I said, is that a verse somewhere? Surely it's a verse somewhere. I don't think she pulled it. So it's John. That's third, third John, I think. I have it written down somewhere. I just have to find it. Maybe I don't have it written down. But it's the idea that the great joy that he took was that his children walk in the truth. Is that the perception change that we need to make? Whenever we encounter ideas of pride or feelings of pride, do we need to examine those feelings and adjust our language accordingly? Or do we need to examine those feelings and realize that they are prideful and then repent of them? So I would, uh, like I said, I don't think I'm going to give an answer to the question of is there such a thing as righteous self-pride, righteous pride or righteous self-love? But I'm giving you an almost answer, which I would say is probably not. That you have to be very careful, and that if you ever want to make a claim that this is a righteous sort of pride, that you really need to stop and consider what you're saying and whether you're accurate in what you're saying and whether it tracks with Scripture. So, two minutes for comments on that, and then we'll get to the final point. So he's boasting? Yeah. But he has the right Yeah, in Philippians, he boasts, or he says, I take pride in the race that I ran, and the work that I did. Look at the context, it's about the benefit that came to those to whom he preached. So, yes, Mike. Right, the last point, and then we'll wrap up, is what I would call the futility and folly of pride. So, um, why do I say futile? Well, I say futile because of what Jones said earlier about it's madness. It's stupidity. It's futile. It's without ever going to be able to succeed or have effect. At the end of days, what's going to be the result of our pride? Well, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king in Zion, my holy hill. He's going to laugh. The result of our pride and our self-love is the laughter of God, because his will will be accomplished. His will was secured before Sin, self-pride, and self-love were even a thing because he's God. Now, I pointed out earlier that I think that for the believer, our pride and self-love are have an added depth of folly and futility because we share in this, our pride and rebellion is no more successful than that of the unrepentant. It's, it's also failed, doomed to failure. It's only by the grace of God that we don't suffer the ultimate consequences of it, that he's redeemed us and paid that price for us. 
but it also is self-defeating. I don't, I don't know if it was Dennis or somebody said that. It's a self-defeating idea that we have pride and self-love because the things that he offers is better. Our ultimate position and our, if, we're, if we care about our advancement and our elevation, then we find no greater advancement and elevation than we do in the kingdom. It's like, what is, what is better than to be you know, sons of God and co-heirs with Christ? Now, is that, our, is that our goal? Is that our purpose? No. No. Lord, may it never be. That's, the, that's my heart, that that be my purpose. But he brings us into the kingdom when we have nothing to offer, and he then makes us sons and daughters and co-heirs with Christ. So, where are we? Yeah, there we go. Romans 8. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So, this in mind, practically speaking, how do we live? I, uh, I love uh, the book of Philippians, um, and this is a bit of an aside, but I'll take the time anyways. I love and I find joy in the use of Scripture in conversation with one another. The reason that I was drawn to Philippians originally was, how long have I been back in Amarillo? I've been back in Amarillo nine years. So over nine years ago, church in Waco, um, we were discussing something. And a brother of ours, Paul, quoted a passage from Philippians 3 that struck me. And ever since then, I've not been stuck in Philippians. My dad got stuck in Ephesians 1 for a year once. Um, I've not been stuck in Philippians ever since, but I always I, I seem to be inevitably drawn back to Philippians. Um, and I just love the book. The whole thing, we could just read the whole thing, and it would be a, a lesson on, how, on pride and self-love and how we should respond and act in response to that. But this is Paul speaking. He's just gotten through his diatribe about his, what he has to offer, and it's rubbish. You know, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees, Hebrew of Hebrews. He can't say this. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that it may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, those of us who are mature, think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So, with that being said, unless there's additional comments in the two minutes that we have, his point is there is a gracious self-love, which Jones discusses in that chapter. Yes. 
All right. Hearing no further comments, we'll move on. All right. Pride. God hates the proud. I mean, it's clear throughout Scripture. We'll get through to some examples where he discusses particular passages, and I'll be curious if any of you all have any to add to the, his list. But he pr- began um, with this observation, which is, I think, is something of a, I want to say a condemnation on the church and how we view these things, but it is a warning and an instruction, and it's one that I don't think about, and I should, which is, we do not think about the things God hates. We much prefer to dwell upon what and whom he loves. I think this gets somewhat to Dennis's point, our natural inclination in our culture to focus on God is love. Love your neighbor as yourself. What's wrong with self-love? Uh, I don't know if any of you have read the uh, book Blue Like Jazz. Is that what it is? Which is what I'd say an example of that perspective attempted to be brought into the Christian worldview. We do not much prefer, we much prefer to dwell upon what and whom he loves. But how often do we meditate upon what God hates? How often do we sing about what God hates? Should we not be concerned to worship God for his whole being, including his attitude toward the universe he created? In other words, we have to give attention to not only what God loves, but also what he hates. So he points out, he, he flagged three particular verses. First is in Proverbs 6. There are six things God hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. In Proverbs 8, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. And James, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I don't know if any of y'all have any particular passages on pride that y'all especially love to quote to yourselves in sort of a self-edifying way. Um, Or maybe your spouse likes to quote them at you. (laughs) But the one I come back to, and it's not a verse particularly on pride, but it's one that was uh, I, I first really came to understand and learn about when I was in law school. Um, I will not vouch that uh, Baylor Law School is a Christian institution. I would not go so far as to say that. They like to pretend to be, though. Um, and part of that pretense is, uh, is on the outside of one of the walls is a passage um, from Micah 6, Micah 6, 8. It's one of my favorite um, passages on, quote-unquote, what, what God requires of us. He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So clearly the, the word calls us from a life of pride to a life of humility. I love Micah and the way it describes it, the idea of walking humbly, meaning humility should come in and instruct and influence and impact and govern our day-to-day walk. This will come back to the question I brought up earlier about how should then we view the idea of righteous pride and whether that is such a thing or righteous self-love. And the idea again of is it a language problem? Do we need to correct the way we think about these things? And I love this passage because I think it provides you a quick statement of, am I walking humbly? Not am I humble, am I walking humbly? Am I looking at the decisions and the actions I'm taking and doing them in humility or with consideration towards humility, not with consideration towards pride? Because then humility becomes a much more active thing as opposed to a position or a attitude of humility which can seem somewhat passive. If we are walking with humility and we are walking humbly, then we are active in our humility, and that is going to counter the idea of walking with pride or having a prideful attitude. So, why does God hate the proud? He says he hates the proud, but why? Ideas, questions. Anyone have a thought? 
Yes. Makes the individual preeminent son of God. One I thought of is it is it is a rejection of the good things that he is able to give me that are over and above that which I can do on my own. What else? Yes. Yes. So yes, it's 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 the root of sin. It it, it leads to sin. What else? Yes, again, y'all are all jumping ahead. My notes run in a linear fashion. I don't, I don't like this. Yes, it objectifies man. It puts, it, 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 it's an ignorance of man in our position. Yes, yes. And again, stop jumping ahead to my notes. Go ahead, Dick. Fair question. I actually avoided going to Webster, um, <laughs> because I wanted to avoid that uh, imposing some improper restraint on what the Scripture says about pride. As for what pride entails, whether it is the result of or the root of, I would say you can have both. That pride can be the result, the end result, and also can be the root of other sins. Um, Setting itself up against God is, I would believe, one example of what that would look like and what it is fundamentally. Um, but I did not want to get into a strict definition. Uh, one thing you'll learn about me, um, I, I don't know if this is a natural caution or if it was pounded into me as an attorney. I avoid blanket or absolute statements unless I have an absolute authority. I can like say, no, he said it first. Uh, and uh, this is one of those instances where I'm going to, I'll talk around and flesh it out, but I'm never going to give you what I'd call black letter definition of pride. Uh, though if anyone has any observations or comments on Mike's question, I'm curious. Yeah. 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 Uh, I will say that uh, in a certain sense, I'm going to refer to, a, I think it was Justice Brandeis, who was the old Supreme Court justice, and they were doing, um, they were reviewing cases on uh, depravity and obscenity. It was the obscenity cases back in the early 20th century. And somebody said, what's the definition of obscenity, or quote-unquote pornography? And uh, he said, I can't give you a definition, but I know it when I see it. Uh, and so that's, that. I mean, pride manifests itself, and we'll get to this in a little while, in so many ways. Uh, and how do we define that? But we know it when we see it. We know it. We probably know it when we see 